Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Hello, people of the world. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. I am Tim Vetter. I go cool places, do cool things, and talk to really amazing people, and then I share all of that with you. If you are a faithful listener, thank you. Appreciate you. If you're a brand new listener because of today's guest, well, hey, thank you too. Because today's guest is amazing. All right, Rolf Potts. Rolf Potts is a travel writer and journalist who breathed life into this term and basically created the term vagabonding. So a vagabond is a wanderer. It's a pretty old term. But what vagabonding refers to is the style of travel that Rolf was doing really in like the early internet age, pre-social media age, really pre a lot of the information that you're able to get today about traveling. And what he's referring to is living and traveling in a thrifty manner, making your money stretch, not staying in $300 a night hotels. It's meeting the people in the places that you go to and really experiencing their lives and trying to emulate the way that they're living their lives and having conversations with them. It's the understanding that maybe the cab ride to the Taj Mahal, you have the most meaningful conversation that you've had on that trip and maybe it's, it's even better than the actual visit to the Taj Mahal. Something real like down to the earth, hostile stays, not, you know, traveling just to party and do the resort thing. Travel, not vacation. You know, he was really, really influential for me because everything that he talks about, I already loved and it really normalized it and made me feel like I was okay and not crazy for, you know, wanting to live a life of new experiences and travel and uncertainty rather than the certainty of, you know, jumping into a marriage and kids and, and career and being kind of sedentary so he made me feel like I wasn't crazy for wanting things that he also wanted. And I know that, you know, he's got a million copies sold of his of vagabonding. He's been hugely influential for so many people. You check out his Reddit AMA, uh, any of the platforms that he's on online. There's always tons of content and uh, positive f- feedback. And uh, this was amazing, man. Like he was, he was one of the people I wanted initially when I started this podcast. And I was able to actually sit down with him in person here in New York City you know, the planets aligned, things worked out perfectly. He's here in Manhattan uh, promoting his new book that came out this week called Souvenir. And he had a little bit of time to come, you know, chat and chill. So this was really awesome. Um, You can find Rolf through my show notes. I'm going to have links to get his books, a link to his website, his blog, uh, maybe some contact information and uh, check him out. I'm also, as I've done with many guests before in the past, I'm going to do a giveaway. So his new book, Souvenir, I'll have some copies of that to give away. And I'll also have some copies of Vagabonding, uh, his first book that, uh, like I said, was the one that I read. And I would love to be able to you know, share that wisdom with some folks by giving away some copies of his book. You can find out how to participate by going to my Instagram account. That is The Voyages of Tim V., Usually I do something real simple where you just have to comment and say if you're interested and then I pick people randomly. So um, that'll be up tomorrow. What is today? Today's the 14th. That'll be up uh, the 15th or the 16th. So check that out. 
and um, I'll run that for a couple weeks. So people that are just listening to this for the first time a couple weeks from now, you'll have an opportunity to participate in that. As always, you can send me an email, thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. I love hearing from people. I love getting feedback. Uh, this has been such a treat, man. It's, it's been a trip. Uh, th- these are a lot of people who influenced me and that I look up to, and now I'm, I'm meeting them. I'm hanging out with them. I'm getting to know them. I'm, I'm joining some people's in, inner circles. Uh, this is really you know, starting to become something. So uh, really appreciative of, of all the guests I've had and obviously everyone who's tuning in and listening. Okay, I'm going to stop babbling on. Enjoy this one, folks. Uh, I really did, and I, I think you will too. really, really excited to do this. When I started the podcast, I gave myself like a little wish list of people and you were right at the top of the list. So to be able to sit here with you and to have some time to, to pick your brain is really cool. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess maybe we'll start with why are you here in New York? Uh, well, I like New York is a great world city. It's one of my favorite places to be. Uh, I have a new book that just came out a week ago. I'm not sure when your episode is going to air. It's called Souvenir. I'm doing some promotional events for that. Um, and then I, I have a friend who um, is out of town, so I'm house-sitting for him for a while, and that gives me some some time to um, spend a little bit more time than I would normally in one of my favorite cities. So when you're here, I mean, New York is is pretty vast in terms of culture. Do you have any things that you do repetitively, or are you like, hey, I'm going to check out something new for the umpteenth time that I've been here? Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, and then I also do a lot of work. You know, actually, I come to New York and s- spend a lot of time indoors doing the same kind of writing I would do in other places. Um, but, I, I mean, New York is just... There's things that happen here that don't happen anywhere else in America, or at least, like for con- there's always concerts coming through, um, and there's some fantastic museums. Uh, my new book is about souvenirs, but I could probably write another one about museums. It's just a pretty common travel ritual for me, um, and so weirdly enough, uh, even though I've been coming and going from here for a couple of weeks now, I haven't really been out in earnest that much. I've been pretty busy uh, with a lot of stuff. Uh, tied into the new book, but like I like to go to MoMA, I like to go to the Whitney, I like to go to other places like that, Central Park, and weirdly enough, I, numerically, I have more friends here than probably any other city in the world. You know, really? like I have a lot of childhood friends where I grew up, but um, as far as like adult friends, I mean, it's just a population dense place full of interesting people. So yeah. I have a lot of friends here. So let's talk about the new book for a second. What was the impetus for this? Well, it's part of a series by Bloomsbury called Object Lessons, and it's a short book. It's probably 25,000 words. Uh, Mine is about souvenirs, but Object Lessons are about really any object that you have an interesting intellectual look at. Um, And I've been writing about travel for almost 20 years, usually about specific journeys and what happens on those journeys. But there's elements that connect all of the journeys I've done. Um, Actually, museums being one thing that I go back to again and again. Crossing borders is something I end up doing again and again. Um, you know, dealing with languages, things like that. 
but souvenirs is something I've been keeping notes on for a long time just because it's a curious ritual, something that we do almost compulsively when we first start to travel. And then the more we travel, it sort of gets more nuanced. Sometimes we collect souvenirs less. Some we, sometimes we get much more specific. Um, and it's just something that interested me. I actually got the, I, I discovered a few years ago that, um, when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went to Shakespeare's estate in Stratford in the 1780s, they they got they took out knives and carved off pieces of his chair. Really? Yeah. And so, as souvenirs. And so it just that that was so absurd, and and it sort of ramped up my interest in souvenirs and just the the behavior they bring out in people, and the way they've been um, collected in the past, and just the psychology and anthropology and tied in with my own experiences, made it an interesting topic. And by the time I got done writing it, I had discovered so many things that I hadn't considered before. So yeah, I was going to ask you about the psychology of that. Is that to, to show people, hey, I was really here? Or is it a way to keep the memory alive? So it's something that you can look at and be like, oh, yeah, those were the good times I had traveling? Both. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we collect souvenirs. Um, you know, going back in history, before you could before you could have Instagram pictures of every place in the world, it proved you'd been someplace. And some early souvenirs were either sort of sacred souvenirs from, from holy shrines or curiosities that people brought back to prove that they'd been to this weird part of the world where this certain seashell grows or you know this certain spice is collected. Um, yeah, and then there's, so there's uh, proving that you've been there and then structuring your memories too. Um, I don't think souvenirs are necessarily a one-to-one -one representation of where you've been. Like a, a souvenir, a, diff, a given souvenir has different meanings over time. Uh, but it is, unlike a photograph, which also serves memory, it is sort of an associational way to remind yourself uh, either of something you've done or a place you've been or just a certain time in your life. And as I say in the book, some souvenirs might be really important to you at a certain age. And then they become less important over time and uh, something that you may not have expected to be important later uh, evokes stronger memories than you assumed it would. And sometimes it's a gimmick, right? Like I've been in places in Southeast Asia where you go to the night market and, and there's the handcraft. And then you're in another country, whatever, a couple weeks later, and you're like, wait, they have the same exact handcraft here in this country? I mean, so some of it uh, seems more like mass-produced as a way to stimulate local economies, no? Yeah, and just... Definitely. I, I think um, any place w that attracts tourists, that's going to be a component of yeah. the tourist economy, right? You know, there's going to be hotels and restaurants and taxi drivers and stuff, and tourists need those services, but they also really want tokens of the visit. Uh, and so, yeah, that's actually, I found evidence that things were being imported, like, Pilgrims who went to the Holy Land 1,500 years ago could buy little little clay crosses that had been imported from Alexandria, Egypt. You know, wow. from from yeah. fairly far away. So I think that there there has always been a degree to which there's a souvenir economy to cater to um, things that people want, and usually small, inexpensive tokens of, of where they've been. And a lot of souvenirs in, in religious shrines in particular, or homes of famous people like, like uh, Shakespeare, uh, they preempt the theft 
of token items, right? If a few pilgrims go to Jerusalem a year, it's fine if they take some dirt from the floor of the shrine or, you know, they chip off a bit of the temple. But the more people come to a place, the more destructive that so is. There's no more temple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I say temple, but it happened to George Washington's home. Mount Vernon was sort of getting torn apart in the mid-19th century. And so really? they, they sort of pioneered the gift shop around then to just to keep... To give something, to offer something as as a token, as a souvenir, uh, to make a little bit of money, and then to preempt that theft, you know. Yeah. What have you over the years? Like, do you have a certain thing that's like, all right, I'm in this country, I have to get the figurine or the magnet or the the thing that you have? I've been through phases like that. I actually write about this in the book. When I was in Asia, I would always go and get masks when I first started traveling mm -hmm. around Asia. Which, after having done that for several months, I sort of became flummoxed by why I was doing it, because I was buying basically performance masks, but I wasn't going to the performances. Mm. Um, and so I explore that in the book, and I think this is not uncommon for people, that we start out collecting something, and then we just sort of lose steam with it. You know, my nephew collected keychains for a while. I don't think he does that anymore. Um, yeah, and so as I examine in the book, the, the masks, I realized, weren't really about the travels I was having. They were about me hanging out before my trip with my friend who collected masks and looking at the masks on his wall and thinking, well, I'd love to travel too. And so I just with sort of unthinkingly started to collect masks as a way of verifying the fact that I was traveling. Right. And then eventually I realized it wasn't really my own ritual. And so I stopped collecting them. So I, I don't really have an ongoing um, thing that I collect. It's pretty esoteric at this point. Okay. Do you have? Yeah, I'm so... I, I do the, the refrigerator magnet thing. Okay. But I too, like, been, you know, I just a couple of weeks ago went down to Mexico and then I was in Memphis for the first time, which, you know, isn't that exciting, but uh, typically I would have collected them and I've just sort of fallen off too because it does feel like the, I'm not trying to quite seek out the store to find the magnet and things like that, like in the middle of the thing that I'm experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it changes. I think that we... We become different people. We become more experienced travelers. Our refrigerators get full, you know. Um, and then, yeah, there's multiplicity. I, I remember I got a postcard from Memphis. I talk a little bit about postcards. I went to Sun Studios and got a got the postcard yeah. of like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and um, Jerry Lee Lewis, I think, all together in Sun Studios. Um, and I think that was just. Um, influenced by my interest in rock and roll and the origins of rock and roll. I don't necessarily collect postcards, but I just sort of liked the image. I got a t-shirt from Sun Studios too. I have, I have some refrigerator magnets where they're mostly things people have given me, you know, okay. that those end up being a gift item oftentimes. Uh, and so sometimes we collect souvenirs as tokens of our own travels, but they're gifted a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think a lot of our first experiences with souvenirs are when our parents or an uncle or somebody, grandparents come back and give us a gift from some faraway place. Yeah, you just reminded me, my, my dad rides uh, Harley Davidson's. So that's something that everywhere I go in the world. So even like Nairobi, Kenya, I'm looking for the Harley Davidson shirt. And actually that's been like a really cool conversation starter in a lot of places because here's the white American guy walking into the store and they're like, oh, you must ride bikes, even though I don't. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And then there's like, there's the real weird stuff too. So like in Bali, they sell like penis keychains as a thing. Right. Or like things made from elephant poop in Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually there's, um, and I think oftentimes the reason they sell those is because people buy them, you know, is that there's something, they sell kangaroo scrotum keychains yeah, or, yeah. or uh, coin purses in, <laughs> in Australia, you know. And actually I went to a travel and souvenir uh, vendor show in Las Vegas and talked to people and they said that novelty is a big selling point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there's something that seems silly, like the penis gourds or whatever that they sell in Bali or the South Pacific, then just people think it's funny. You know, like I, I bought a, a kangaroo scrotum coin purse for my aunt just because I had threatened to do it and she told <laughs> yeah. me not to. And so I bought her one anyway. It's funny that you mentioned uh, um, Harley Davidson. They, in Thailand, when I was there about 15 years ago, they had the Harley Davidson logo, but in Thai script. Mm. Um, and a friend of mine works for Arnold Schwarzenegger and I gave him, because he rides a Harley, I gave him the t-shirt and Arnold likes it, liked it so much that, um, I don't know if, I don't know if my friend went back and bought one for him or not, but it's funny that, you know, t-shirts are are souvenirs too. Yeah. And and that like, like a hobbyist could conceivably collect Harley shirts with the script of whatever country he goes to. The funny thing about that too, is in a lot of those night markets, they'll have sort of like the Southeast Asian shirt that doesn't quite fit the American torso and they'll have the Harley label on them. But I think 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't ride a Harley. You could only, I, I don't know the how many cc's the motor is, but you could only ride like uh, scooters. In Asia? In in Thailand specifically, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I rode um, I rode those little 100 yeah, yeah. cc bikes and don't recall ever seeing Harley, so okay, I, yeah. I can believe that. It's, um, that's sort of my lens, if you couldn't tell, the Southeast Asia, because that's where I've been the last three summers. Um, Thailand specifically? No, Thailand. So I went one year as part of a trip. I was in Bangkok, and then the next year I went to Chiang Mai. Um, so I've been there. You know, I've been to Thailand twice. But yeah, with each you know passing year, they are starting to get bigger bikes there, and and biker culture is a thing that's catching on. Huh. At least from what I've experienced. Uh, to maybe give folks a little bit of context, uh, we we chatted about this for a second before I started, but um, and to roll it back a bit. I had started my traveling and then I heard of you. Um, But my buddy Dan, who's been on this podcast, he's a really amazing photographer. Your book was something that really helped to propel him to start and kind of gave him the confidence and the resources. Uh, I knew a lot about traveling when I started, so your book was less of a resource for me, but a huge reaffirmation that I'm not crazy and that what I'm seeking out of life is okay. Uh, I'm sure you get this a lot. I read your Reddit AMA. And this, this maybe sounds like quite a pretentious label, but you have the it that I like to talk about. And the it is just like, there's certain musicians that you like or authors or people that are doing things that really seem like they understand life through the lens that you understand it through. Uh, and so first, thank you. And as I'm sure many people have thanked you before, but do you see yourself as fitting into sort of like the lexicon of travel? Like to me, there's, and and you might agree, there's Bourdain who's had a massive influence on travel from the, from the TV side of things, but you've had an incredible impact, essentially breathing life to the term vagabonding. Yeah. It's hard to say because it's, it's like from my own perspective, you know, I mean, the book is 15 years old now. Um, and so when a book first comes out, you just hope so- somebody reads it. You know, you, you hope you captured something. And it felt, it felt special, I guess, when I finished writing it. You know, I felt like I had, I had um, communicated something that went beyond 
what I had even intended to. I sort of wrote my way into something that felt good. Um, but yeah, after 15 years, it's, it's, it's selling as well as ever. You know, there are people who've read my book, met on the road, married, have kids, you know, um, it's, it's just been fun. And actually a lot of people in your situation, people, and this includes Ari Shafir on whose podcast I've been before, people who are already traveling, but they read the book and it's like, yes, you know, like I had a vague notion of why I left home, but this is it, you know, this helps, this, this lays out the philosophy and sort of the, even the common sense rationale for why I do this and continue to like to. Yeah. This conversation also, it happens at a particular time for me. So I'm 31 years old. I've always sort of known that I didn't want what was traditionally fed to us. I, the first thing that really like showed me that that's okay is punk music in my teens. I was like, oh wow, this is something I can grasp that, that I agree with. Um, and now I'm 31 and I see people who have been friends of mine that want to travel and say things to me like, oh, well, I'll travel once I'm retired. And this is something you've spoken about, but I mean, hey, 65, your body might not work. Um, you might not even be alive. I have friends who are married newly married and I can already see like things are not going so well. So I'm not trying to demonize like the house and kids and wife if, if that's what people want. Um, but I think, I don't know if you have an explanation or an answer for this. I think more and more people are starting to turn to alternative lifestyles and are seeking more. I don't know if it's the access of information from the internet, uh, but do you get the same sense that I do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell empirically exactly what's happening. But you mentioned before, you know, how um, I've become a voice for a certain type of travel. Somebody interviewed me, a remote interview recently about digital nomadism. Mm. Um, and I was answering the questions and I went to the Wikipedia page and I was noted, I was listed as a notable digital nomad. You oh, know, yeah. It's one of those things <laughs> where um, I was doing that before the term existed, or at least the, before the term was widely used. Yeah. Um, and then I appeared to have influenced it without really coining the term. You know, right. I didn't coin the term, but a lot of the, a lot of the philosophy of digital nomadism is, is precisely vagabonding. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think before the era in which I was traveling and I was writing vagabonding, the kind of long-term travel was really seen as a counterculture thing, a sort of a dropout. Hippie might be too strong of a word because you didn't ha necessarily have to be a hippie to travel the world, but it was really seen as this um, rebellious choice. It wasn't seen necessarily as a perfectly common sense choice. Um, it was there, there was sort of a lot of symbolic rebellion to travel, and, and that's fine. You know, if that gets you on the road, if sticking it to the man get, gets you on the road, that's fine. But um, the way I saw it, it didn't didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be an act of rebellion. It, it could be an act of common sense. It could be a gift that you gave yourself. Uh, and so I think I. I helped reframe that conversation. And I think vagabonding was well-timed in that it was, it was written in the dial-up internet era. It was before social media. Yeah. Uh, it was before you know, Skype and all kinds of things that we, WhatsApp, things that we use every day now. And so it just sort of, the popularity of my book grew in tandem, even blogs. Blogs didn't really exist um, when the book came out. I mean, they did, but they didn't really explode until after 
the book was out. And so suddenly all these tools came into existence that matched with the philosophy that I talked about, made that common sense thing make sense, right? And so now you have, uh, now it's just an option, you know? Again, it's not a dropout thing, it's just another option that you can do. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who, who aren't aware of it, and I hear from them almost every week, you know, people who just never considered that travel was something they could do now, that they were waiting for their retirement, that they were going to put it off. But especially with the blogosphere and social media and the online world, that ideas spread so much faster and solutions spread faster. So for example, someone who may have been really worried in 1989 about how they would get from point A to point B and all the other ways that they would talk themselves out of travel. Now they can go online. Uh, you know, uh, if you're an, an African American woman from Florida and you're a little nervous about what that means for your travels, there's probably five Floridian African American ladies out doing it, you know? Right. So you, you don't even have to take it, take broad advice from me that you can really find people who reflect yourself who are already out there doing it. And, and they probably were doing it in 1989, but there was, the access to that was very limited. And right. so I've met tra family travelers. I've met giant families that are traveling, like families of seven that are traveling together. Uh, and so, yes, I think it is happening more. I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of people still aren't aware of how easy it is. And, um, but it's, it's so much easier to do it now that instead of being an act of resistance, it's, it's, a, it's a choice among many choices in life. Yeah. And I love how you, I watched one of your lectures and you sort of use travel as the lens through which to look at things or the metaphor for life, but really a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the tips and the advice are things that translate to, to everyday life. Like, well, first of all, like your time is really your wealth and, and slow travel is really slowing down and appreciating the things and being in the moment. Um, on time specifically, it's, it's always interesting to me. I haven't traveled anywhere near as long as you have. Um, in any single amount of time. But there's always that moment where, let's say it's a Wednesday and you turn to the people you've been doing things with and you're like, is today Wednesday? And there's also the, like I, I live in South Brooklyn. It's about an hour and a half to get to Yankee Stadium if I want to go to a Yankee game. If I go to work, I'm like, oh, do I really want to trek the hour and a half? When you're traveling, you're like, oh, five hour train ride, to six hour overnight bus to get to this amazing thing I want to do. Yeah, no big deal, that's nothing. So it is amazing how much time opens up to you when you strip away all of the routines that you're, you're kind of stuck in in your everyday life. Time really slows down too, you know, um, that you'll be in some amazing place. Thailand, I was in Hawaii this winter. I was in Southern Africa last year. And like I have a, I have an old um, external hard drive that I back up my computer with sort of a, a before the cloud was really common. Mm. And it reminds me how long it's been since I've backed it up. And so I remember being in Southern Africa last year and just having just this dense amount of experiences. And then I opened up my computer and it says, it's been 10 days since your computer's been backed up. And that meant it'd been 10 days since I'd left the United States. Right. You know? And so time, those 10 days had been like three months or something, just the amount of different places I'd been and experiences I'd had and absolutely new things that I had seen, um, had, I'd processed them in a way, I guess neurologically, it, it makes sense is that uh, newness, you know, routines sort of become more efficient in the brain, whereas new things um, 
require more more thought power and more processing and new experiences I guess slow slow down time in a certain sense and so you really can you really can stack it up now um, I'm not saying that's a cure-all that you can completely live a thousand years right. life <laughs> if you just travel full-time because people get burned out by travel oh yeah um, and then sometimes there's people it's 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 sad that it happens but after 10 days they're just completely blown away and, and um, inspired but then after two years is the drug isn't working you know it's like okay here's another wonderful mountain you know here's another amazing um, lizard again you know and so the newness becomes a part of the routine that already exists uh, and so uh, yeah so it's not a silver bullet to to to, to cure everything, but I think finding a good rhythm, and, and in fact, sometimes I, I tell people when they burn out on travel, find a village and settle down for a while, because experiencing a place sitting still for three months is gonna be different than experiencing 40 places moving for, for three months. Yeah, so I was gonna ask you that, because um, with each guest that I've had, I've had on here, I've tried to take some type of a lesson from them, and I had a singer of a, a punk hardcore band, his name is Scott Vogel, and he was saying, like, yeah, sometimes I don't, I don't want to be Scott Vogel from the band. Like, I get real tired of it. I just want to be a guy. Um, so I was wondering, how do you balance a life of travel when you're at home? Well, of course, my situation is pretty unique to myself. I, after years of travel, bought a house in Kansas, which is where I'm from. It's right next door to my parents' house. It's a mile and a half from, away from my sister's house. Uh, but it's really helped me structure, it, it's given me a home. It's given me that rhythm, that counterbalance where I can go to a place and be still, I can read books, I can do work, I can hang out with family and friends, I can spend very little money, which is a nice part of, of having a base in Kansas as opposed to a you know, base in NoHo Manhattan where we're sitting now. Uh, and it allows me to reset. Um, again, it's not a perfect uh, silver bullet either. I was talking to somebody in an interview recently about how I miss my old dirtbag days. In fact, yeah. I think Ari Shafir, I was talking about this, is that just spending a, a year just traveling dirt cheap, um, I haven't done that in a while. I've traveled, I've traveled three, four, five, six months at a time, um, but I usually come back home. Uh, and then because I'm a little bit more established, um, I end up renting cars quite a bit. So when I was in... Africa, I rented a four-wheel drive, and it really made things efficient. I was able to go places like in Mozambique, which has really bad roads, that I wouldn't have been able to go to otherwise. But uh, I don't get the chicken bus experience. You know? Right, I don't exactly. get that super slow, dirtbag, hostile experience. Is that uh, not as like sexy as you get older? Does it kind of seem like, ah, I've done that, and I know like this is going to be kind of a pain in the butt? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's times you know, that, that you meet... I'm trying to think how to describe it exactly. I mean, you you meet so many amazing people, um, and actually, yeah, no, I, I'm uh, I would be the old guy in a hostel. I stayed sort of in a hostel setup when I was in Hawaii on the Big Island, then um, just had like an amazing time with people, basically half my age, and and I, I, it's really inspiring when people are young and, and are are embracing so many questions. So I guess I just talked myself out of, uh, of, of criticizing yeah. the, the dirtbag lifestyle. Um, I mean, there, there's certain cliches in, of, of hostile life, for example, or the sort of one downsmanship of trying to spend as little money as possible when you don't have much money that can, that can just get boring um, if you're around people who really overemphasize that. Um, but I'm all about mixing it up. Uh, and I probably haven't done this enough, but 
maybe as I continue to move forward, being the guy, the older guy who, who has a rental car, who picks up more hitchhikers and takes more people from one hostel to the other and picks up local people sometimes, um, just to mix it up. Again, because I think there's people who do do the hostel thing for two, five, ten years at a time, but how many people can really continue to grow that way, yeah. you know? Were you in Kauai? I was, yeah. That's crazy because I was following you kind of through Instagram. I think you've been posting stuff since you've been there, but I did an interview with someone who is in Kauai, maybe at the same time. We did it right after the Super Bowl. Okay. Um, I was on the Big Island for the Super Bowl, and I made it to Kauai probably a little less than a week later. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah, so his name is Jackson Groves. He's from Australia. Uh, he has uh, he does travel blogging, right? And he, quite a following, like real big. But he clearly influenced, again, by vagabonding, says, like, I won't spend more than $10 a day on lodging. Uh, entire world, pretty much, that he owns is on his back. So um, that's kind of a meta connection there going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm guessing he camped a lot in Hawaii. Hawaii is pretty expensive. That's Hawaii, what I hear. Yeah. Hawaii is amazing. Like, I, I put it off my whole life. I've been to so many other tropical places um, that I thought, well, how exciting can it be? It's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful, have you been there? No, I haven't. Yeah, no, it's, um, I was 47 before I made it to Hawaii and man, God, it's, it's an amazing place. It's expensive because everything obviously has to be imported. Yeah. And it's America, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it's in, it jibes more with, uh, the American economy and, uh, to get around, you ha you don't have to rent cars, but it helps, um, it's, it's actually in, in Kauai in particular, it's pretty easy to hitch. Uh, but it's just a popular place too. And so you're competing against fairly wealthy American and Asian travelers who are pricing you out. And so yeah. unless you have a, a, a reservation at the hostel far in advance or unless you uh, are actively camping or couch surfing. I actually did some couch surfing when I was in, when I was in Kauai. Um, it's a good way to go. You know, I, you were talking about everything he owns is on his back. I, did, I went around the world with no luggage eight years ago now. Actually, it's funny. I shot one of the videos in this apartment. Um, uh, that was fun. I mean, it's fun to be in that situation where everything you own is on your back or that everything you own, you own is in your pockets or at least everything you're traveling with is on your, in your pockets. And so that's a good reminder that travel gives you, especially that stripped down independent travel is how little you need, how, how little mm. junk you need. And that you can, for, for pennies a day, for dollars a day, you can have these amazing experiences. And so I don't, I, I, I don't want to oversell that, but, but literally there's billionaires, I think I talked about with, this, with Tim Ferriss, who have much more frustrated, less interesting lives than people like your Australian friend you were just talking about, who can really do whatever they want at any day. They don't have anything to, to look over. And you don't need a billion dollars to, to meet amazing people and see amusing, amazing things. Yeah, and again, like to, I keep tying this back to to my own experiences, but I never I never say the name of where I work, but people know I work in education, and I rose up really fast, really fast. You know, I was a twenty five year old assistant principal, um, and it's like, hey, you've got you've got the four hundred one k, and that's starting to grow, and that's great. But again, it's the, okay, I'm getting these things. I don't really need these things. I'm getting this money that I don't actually spend because it's a 401k and I can't touch it until I'm in my 60s anyway. Um, so I, I can definitely say that. I have friends in banking who I'll say, hey, let's, let's do something this weekend. Oh, I can't. I have to work, have to work, have to work. 
And I don't know, I just feel like, to tie it back into what we were talking about before, I think a lot of people nowadays are just saying, say, well, well what for? Um, whereas, like, the America of, of, of my father's age, and I'm sure your father's age, was uh, a lot of blue-collar work. Um, that's, that's what you did. <laughs> and you had, you had a relatively happy life. Um, yeah, well, you, I, I think now young people coming up are aware of broader options. You yeah. know, it used to be, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you work your way into the middle class. I mean, that, and that, that can lead to a very satisfying life. My mom came from a farm family and I think was the first person to get a college education in her family and became a, a teacher, second grade teacher in an elementary school. Um, and that was, that was her journey. Got married, uh, had kids, and is actually a great traveler. I've, I've traveled with her in many places. She's a natural for sure. And so I think um, whatever you, you mentioned something earlier about people can read Vagabonding and get non-travel specific advice about it. I was just in Tampa for a conference last week. I met a couple people who talked about the way the Vagabonding mindset has entered their professional life. One guy's a trainer, so um, he he's, he's working on people's bodies, but he's also sort of encouraging his clients to see things, big picture things, you know, how all of this fits into your life, you know, how fitness isn't just to, to impress people or be healthy, but to be more of a holistic person, how it touches other parts of your life. The other person was an interior designer, um, which is actually a harder thing because in South Florida, people think they need to buy a six bedroom house yeah. that covers 4,000 square feet. And then they're here, well, let's make this room look beautiful. And, and so she's like, well, who's, who's going to be in here? How, how's this room going to make you happy and a lot of her clients are like well I want things to match and she's here we'll make things match but who's going to use this room and so suddenly she's meeting clients who have a six room house and they realize they're going to use maybe a room and a half yeah. on a daily basis um, and so actually it's been frustrating for her because she's trying to and I, I think this is brilliant on her part. She's trying to be holistic. She's trying to, we'll call it the vagabonding mindset, but it doesn't even need to be that. Maybe it's the time wealth or the experience wealth mindset of when you design your house, don't just think about what matches or what is going to impress your visitors because how often do you have visitors? Think about what, how you're going to use these rooms, how are these rooms going to make you happy. Um, if you, you know, if you leave, um, how, what are you going to use with this? What are you going to do with this space? Um, and so I think... I, you know, I've had um, people who have used vagabonding in history classes. Um, there's, I think because the philosophy is so much about mindset and about thinking of your life front to back and how you want to spend the time in your life uh, and how, you, how and where you want to experience things, um, there's a lot of ways that it can plug in, you know. There's a lot of ties in here to, to Eastern wisdom. Um, I can't quite recall because I've read it a while ago and I'm sure you've discussed it, but... How did you come to inherit this mindset? Good question. Probably, probably through reading, you know, and, and just sort of a, a crisis of self when I was young, yeah. you know, just of not, of of really, which clearly I'm going through. <laughs> right. right. It's a, well, it's a good thing to go through yeah. because then it, then you're forced to, to consider what matters, and so. You know, there's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of American philosophy and vagabonding that is Eastern influenced. You know, um, Whitman. There's a little bit of Emerson. There's some uh, Thoreau um, and Muir. You know, those are some big Americans uh, that inform uh, not just me, but the other people who I also mention in the book. You know, the, the Kerouacs and and such. Um, and and so yeah, I think 
I just read when I was young in an open-hearted way, you know, like mm. Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road came to me at a very important time. And in fact, I, I think I read it once, thought it was great, and then I read it on my first vagabonding trip. That uh, always seems to happen, huh? Yeah. Yeah, has it happened to you? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, we were mentioning your book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, for, for my buddy Dan, it was, um, I want to go off on my own, take a tra- I want to travel, I want to do it, I want to do it. And, and I talked him through it. And then we had this like little book club thing going on with our friends. And he read Vagabond. He's like, all right, that's it. I'm doing it. I can do it. And, and he did it. Um, so, yeah, I interrupted you. but Yeah, no. no I, I think those, those moments are important. You yeah. Know? And I think that's why, maybe that's why so many people who contact me are people who said, I read Vagabonding while I was already traveling. Mm. Uh, because because this happens, that there's something about the. It's one thing to read it before you travel and be inspired to travel, and and that's probably still the majority of the people who read my book. But it's another thing to be in the concrete situation and suddenly have the abstractions, these little words on a page, suddenly make everything pop and make sense. Uh, and so, Song in the, of the Open Road was one of those situations. I, I think I got it at a bookstore in Montana. I'd read it before. Um, and then just reading it while I was sort of on the tail end of my first vagabonding trip. I think maybe even helped me realize that it didn't have to stop. Yeah. Know? That this, that that eight month trip didn't have to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and then I move on to something more workaholic. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there's the, like you mentioned digital, digital nomads. There's obviously the, well, at some point I need money, even if I'm living, living cheaply. So how can I sustain this? And we don't have to quite touch on that because you, you've talked about that extensively and, uh, I'll do a giveaway. We'll talk, I'll talk about this in the intro, but we'll do a giveaway of a bunch of your books. Um, but there's also that we, we talked about societal pressures, but there's also, at least from what I've seen and experienced, like there's a lot of pressure from family and friends. Like, Oh wait, like you're not also going to have kids. Like I'm not going to have grandkids from you or your friends are like, well, you know, you're a, you're a godfather for my kid and you're not going to be around for a year. Um, I'm not talking about you guys specifically if you're my friends that are listening, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Like, have you, have you felt that, that pressure at all, either initially or, or throughout the years? Sure. And it's a legitimate pressure because you do miss a lot of weddings and yeah. graduations holidays. and reunions and yeah. holidays. And of course now you can Skype and you can really stay in touch in a very direct way, but yeah, you're, you're, you're absent, you know, you're, you're gone from these situations. And so I'm not going to sort of talk my way around the fact that that that's a thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't think it needs to be an inhibiting factor. First off, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do at least one vagabonding trip in your life, a year or six weeks, whatever, then your, your family will get over it. In fact, they, they, they probably won't think about you as much as you, you probably think they will. Uh, and, and so, but then if you decide that, that the digital nomad lifestyle is, is, is your lifestyle, or we'll call it the vagabonding lifestyle because it can, um, there's different ways of inhabiting travel yeah. and being overseas. Um, yeah, then you have to find a way to troubleshoot that. Again, you have to strike a balance. You can't let passive aggression keep you at home your whole life. You know, you can't just um, sort of, relatives who make you feel guilty should not determine the course of your life. Um, they do all the time. They have throughout human history, yeah. but that's a bad reason to not travel is because it'll hurt grandma's feelings because you're not there during Thanksgiving. Um, and often sometimes they'll, they'll actually respect you more if you go and do your thing, you know, that if you're, if you're Skyping during Thanksgiving, actually grandma might think, well, 
goddamn, you know, right. he, he did it. She <laughs> did it. Um, and and I would have loved to do that. And I'm, I'm glad my grandkid didn't listen to to her grandkid grandparents like I listened to my gra- grandparents. And so I think I think that oftentimes the fear that surrounds our friends and family uh, or the the misgivings. Are, are tied to just misunderstandings of how it works and, and how enriching it can be. And then how easy it is to reverse the situation. When I lived in Asia for years, um, I got my parents t- to come to Korea to see me. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and they had to get passports. You know, yeah, they yeah. Had, my dad had traveled in the 60s, but my mom had never traveled out of the country. And they made friends, they made friends for life, you know, um, in Korea. The, um, a, a kid I was tutoring and his parents took us, took us out for dinner. They ended up um, hosting him when he was a teenager. He went to the University of Kansas. He's an American now. Um, and so I think my dad was always gung-ho about things. My mom was maybe a little bit more conservative. Maybe, maybe all moms are more conservative. Um, but then she ended up being a great traveler, you know. Um, so they met me in China and Mongolia a few years later. Uh, they met me in Paris and Prague after that. Um, some of our great – we had a great journey here in New York. We went to D.C. Um, and so it's been fun in, in that – and I don't know if my parents are the perfect example. I mean, they didn't really shove a passport into my hand – like my early travels were really completely independent of them, but but didn't have a lot of resistance from them, um, and so that has borne rewards. I, in fact, even and again, family people who are considering this, who are listening now, I get I hang out with my mom and my dad, who I live very close to now. Some of our best conversations are, "Do you remember Prague? Oh yeah, that was ten years ago this summer. Wasn't that amazing? That day we spent walking, and." It goes back to that experience of time and the way it slows down that some of our best family experiences are actually not Christmas. Is, is the siren going to be a problem? We're in New York, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not sure. I kind of like having this as background noise if, the, if it's in there. So, yeah, New York yeah. City people. Well, we're in, that's fire station number, I don't know what. Oh, that's right there? Yeah. Yeah, screw it. Let's leave it. That's, that's par for the course. Um, if this, no. is, if this is at my house in Kansas, it might be wild turkeys or owls or something. Um, but yeah, just as, as the sirens fade, um, sometimes <laughs> we talk about what happened last Christmas. But Christmas is a ritual where travel is something very specific. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's good to honor rituals. But truly, again, people who are, who are thinking about traveling and are worried about their family, if you can find a way to integrate your family into your travels, um, man, we just, we talk about those trips all the time, me and my parents. That's actually, that's really cool. I hadn't thought about trying to incorporate them into it. That's really, that's awesome. And I was also like, what was just popping in my head too is, also then when you're home, like you, you also learn to value things more and it's, it, and value your time more. Um, one of the things that I notice when I'm away is like, I, and you never really miss TV. Um, even sometimes world events, I mean the major stuff, I was in Vietnam during the uh, lead up to the last presidential election and they had Russian TV showing all the Trump stuff and that's oh. real. That's not, it's not a joke. Um, but so you catch some of the major stuff, but you, you, you're not really catching the latest movie and things like that. Yeah, actually, there's a dark spot for pop pop culture for me between like '97 and 2002, probably. Yeah. Was, <laughs> oh, Jesus, yeah. When I was almost full time. I mean, people will literally talk about some pop song from 1999 if it wasn't playing on the Backpacker Trail. I I don't, I don't really know what it is. I mean, sometimes it's fun to catch a movie overseas. Uh, 
just sort of as a as a respite to go in this dark place that mm. where the movie ritual is is the same uh, around the world. But I swear I don't miss it. Actually, I was in Southern Africa during the inauguration time, and you know just sort of all the anxieties that we had with a new president. Uh, back in January, and it was just such a relief. I actually had my 24-hour days back. You know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about how my friends were melting down on Twitter because they weren't sure what Donald Trump was going to do to the country. You know? Yeah. And of course, America is still here, and my ability to affect anything uh, via social media that I wasn't using in Africa last January um, is non-existent. And so that is nice. There's, there's all sorts of great things to unplug, and I encourage people to unplug from, you know, their smartphone habits and stuff overseas because you can, you can just. Really Really get back into real time as humans experienced it for for thousands of years. You're you're not in this fragmented time where you're jumping from app to app. And I swear to God, I've done it on my phone today. Um, it's just a part of how we live now. Yeah. And there's something luxurious and deeply satisfying about just having a day where your attention is held by whatever is in front of you or wherever you're walking. And, and it's so funny. Asking. It's so funny you say that because this last July I was away. And as soon as I came home, I, I didn't use Facebook. As soon as I came home, I'm on Facebook. And I'm like, oh my God, everyone I know is obsessed with Trump. Yeah. Like they're not, they're, I'm not gonna make this political, but like they're not, in, they're not fans of Trump, but they cannot stop talking about him. And immediately like that Zen that I had when I was away started getting eaten away. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you ever get like post-travel depression? Or have you ever gotten it? I'm sure I have. In yeah. fact, I think that has even influenced that last chapter in Vagabonding where I talk about, and people have thanked me for that last chapter, um, which it just psychologically prepares you for the fact that nobody's really going to understand where you've been. Mm. And you don't need to be a dick about it, right? You don't yeah. have to be a snob. Um, but you can talk, you know, all day and nobody's really going to get it. And you're going to be with dear friends who you're not vibing with in the same way that you vibe with somebody you've known for two days on the other side of the world. And so, yeah, that's a thing. And, and I think you have to prepare yourself for that reverse culture shock, which I think that's a term I use in the book. Uh, and culture shock is a thing. When you go overseas, but then suddenly it's a reverse culture shock and everything that was special about your days is gone. I, I remember going into a Walmart after being in Asia for years, going into Walmart in my hometown and just sort of being freaked out. I sort of felt racism against large white Midwestern people because I was used to being surrounded. I was comfortable yeah. around Asians and suddenly I was unsettled by people who were, weren't that much different than me. And so, yeah, there's this whole, especially when you've been traveling for a long time, a vacation is a vacation. You come back and you're bummed because you're not sitting on the beach in the sunshine. A long-term trip, you come back and you, it's tough to get back into the rhythm of, of normal life. Yeah. The culture shock is funny because I think most people who are in travel writing or most people who, who put themselves out there try to come off as real cool. But I, it's, I was in uh, Yogyakarta in Jogja in Indonesia. And as soon as I landed... I threw up and had diarrhea. I ate, the, I ate satay at the Bali airport. I'm like, why the hell did I do that? And the plane's coming down, and I'm like, oh, I'm, like, I'm literally going down right now. And then I got into a cab. The trunk didn't work, and some guy stepped in front of the cab, stopped it, and made me and my buddy get out. And he's like, bad cab, bad cab, get out. So I'm like, oh, no. Like, did we make a big mistake? Wake up at 4.30 in the morning. First time I ever heard call to prayer and like super early. I'm like, oh, shit, like I think I made a massive mistake. But two days in, I absolutely love it and met someone who's 
really close to me to this day. Um, so you get through it, <laughs> but it's real. <laughs> yes, and in, and unless I'm 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 skeptical of anyone who doesn't have a lot of those shits on the plane moment. Yeah. You know, oh. unless <laughs> unless you're screwing up and sort of being a fool, you don't want to be. Uh, you know, obnoxious in other cultures, but unless you're being vulnerable enough to put yourself in situations that might lead to unfortunate things, then maybe you're not pushing yourself as a traveler. And then you get used to them. I mean, the, the, the anti-climax to going around the world with no luggage many years ago was that after a couple of days, I got used to having no luggage yeah. and the obstacles that I thought might make good videos had been solved, you know? And so I think those and I remember my first time in Southeast Asia, I was sick a lot. And pretty soon, just like the normal diarrhea bugs didn't live in me anymore. Mm. Um, that changed when I got to India. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, you, you shift. You, I mean, again, we've forgotten how, long, how easy it is for humans to shift and adapt without having to buy an app for it or some sort of lifestyle accessory for it. That we're yeah. just... Over, over thousands of years of history, humans have gotten used to adapting to circumstances. And it used to be, that used to be all there was to travel, you know, that you were, you were walking, you know, that you were walking wherever you were going, you know, we're talking over a thousand years ago and that you, you had to figure out languages to a certain extent or, or make things happen. And so I think sometimes we throw so many cool apps or books or gadgets in front of ourselves to eliminate those problems when in fact we have all the tools we have already. You just roll with it, you know. You eat some rice and yogurt, eventually the diarrhea yeah. goes away. <laughs> you learn some phrases of language, you get a little saltier, uh, and then pretty soon you're fine and it's and it's amazing, you know. The gut bug thing is funny too. I read this book called Brain Maker. I've talked about it on here before, but uh, they talk about how beneficial it is to have your microbiome exposed to other uh, climates and bacteria and things like that. Like how that's so beneficial long term to have your uh, your gut bacteria altered. Yeah, <laughs> actually, my my nephews, who I also give travel gifts to, to I've traveled a lot with my nephews. I just took my youngest to to Iceland and Paris last summer. Uh, they grew up on a in a rural area on a farm, basically. Uh, and their parents just let them play in the dirt and stick, stick things in their mouth yeah. and stuff because that's, that's how humans have grown up yeah. um, before. And I, I don't know the science on this, but I think a lot of one influence on you know the allergy epidemic or whatever is that people aren't used to, people just aren't exposed to the same crap and dirt and, and bacteria and everything else that they used to be, that we, we live in a sanitized world. And then suddenly when certain elements, we come into contact with certain elements, we're not used to them. Yeah. So, um, I've had, I've been pretty sick overseas in different circumstances, but, um, I think overall my, my health has been great and I continue to be a healthy person. Yeah. It's not, it's not fun when it happens, but it's always something that gives you a, like a pretty amazing story to tell people and to have a good laugh about. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a whole cluster of them when I first started vagabonding, you know, Maybe um, a lot it. of them made it into my second book, Marco Polo didn't go there. I think, um, uh, that yeah, truly, and, and and again, one thing too is that sickness accidentally slows you down, and then suddenly you thought you were going to be a country away, and now you're still in the same village, and it's been five days, and you know a lot more about the village yeah, than you yeah. thought you did. Um, I have a place and an experience I wanted to, you to expand on. At, at any point that we're getting too late to, just give me a signal, and we'll. Okay, actually, we can. We're probably good for for half past the next hour. If okay, that works sweet. For you. Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. I had I actually had a five fifteen appointment, but it canceled. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, so the, the first is Namibia because I'd love to go there and I saw you just posted a picture from there and I think there's a tie into the book. So I'm just really curious about the experiences that you had there. 
couldn't recommend Namibia more. Mm. Um, I'm sort of a desert person. Uh, I like jungles. Like I was in jungly areas in Hawaii this winter and just had the best time. But at the end of the day, I, I mean, that's a picture of me in the desert on vagabonding, you know, if anybody's. Yeah. And notice the bag is probably bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> um, but that's me in the, in the Libyan desert in Egypt. Um, and so I've always been drawn to desert places. And Namibia is just this amazing dry place. If you go back far enough in time on my Instagram, I um, posted pictures from the Namib Nakluft National Park and Sasas Fly and these big giant orange dunes that are just, just amazing. They're like, um, I, I don't know if I can empirically say they're like no other place in the world, but they're pretty darn special. Um, where you're just, you're just, you're just hiking. And you, if you go to the, the less popular ones, you pretty much have them to yourself. And it's like baby powder, fine sand. It was so wow. hard to climb these dunes. So actually one, definitely go there. Definitely yeah, go okay. there. Namibia is a huge country. Um, and there's actually a lot of things to see and I didn't have time to see them all or even come close, but that is one of those things that should be on the same list as the Eiffel Tower and Machu Picchu and, and other great world destinations. Really? It's just that being there is a special is a special place, you know. Did you do like the camping out in the desert? I didn't. I, I stayed at I stayed at like some cabiny places. I didn't stay okay. in a tent, but I didn't stay at a hotel with a lot of amenities. Okay. It gets super hot there too. But actually I went to amazing I just stayed at just sort of a random guest camp on the border of the national park and maybe an hour from the, that dune. I think I drove an hour in darkness and climbed at first light. Um, but even just hiking around behind my little cabin, it was amazing. Like I, I probably spent four hours the night before just climbing up the nearest mountain, which is an underappreciated travel ritual, you know, that we, we, we talk about the Everests and even like the Machu Picchu's of the world, but yeah, climbing the nearest high spot and seeing what yeah. you can see is a pretty, <laughs> is a pretty cool option. Uh, and it bears rewards in a place like Namibia. And what's the tie into souvenir? Like what, what are people buying in Namibia? Well, it's what they're selling in Namibia. Um, right, right. Okay. And it's interesting that I was, in, I was in Cape Town. I was in near Kruger National Park. I was in different uh, marketplaces in, in different towns in Mozambique. And there's a lot of sameness to African souvenirs in the mm -hmm. same place that there might be sameness to American souvenirs. You get a lot of little carved stuff, carved fishes and masks and, um, and little trinkets, um, warthog tusk bottle openers, things like that. And the reason you find that stuff is the reason that the vendors I talked to on the skeleton coast of Namibia said the same thing as the vendors who sold Eiffel Tower keychains in France. It's that, look, dude, we sell what people buy. Yeah. You know? we, we try to do other <laughs> things, but people, we sell this stuff because that's what people want. So on the skeleton coast of Namibia, where I rented a car, probably should have rented a four-wheel drive. I, I survived in this little Kia. Um, there's really not much out there. I mean, you go up the Skeleton Coast to feel the emptiness of the Skeleton Coast, but so many ships have wrecked on the coast over the years. It's a really foggy, inhospitable area. But shipwrecks have become tourist attractions. And so I was at a, uh, an old Angolan fishing vessel that had crashed there, I think not that long ago. That's think, amazing, like first of all. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sort of that ruin porn aspect of travel. Uh -huh. um, and actually, some of the big majestic <laughs> shipwrecks have rotted away, so they're just sort of waiting for the next shipwrecks to, wow. to come. And this was a fishing trawler. It was, it was out far enough that um, you couldn't, unless you wanted to risk your life swimming out to a shipwreck, uh, you, you, you couldn't actually be on it. But it was out there. And so these Damara tribesmen, um, Southern Africa, sort of, a, sort of a racial minority in among African tribes, not very powerful, live in the mountains, don't have a lot of money. 
Um, they dig a lot of semi-precious stones out of the mountains, and so they polish them and sell them to tourists. They've been doing this for three generations at least, mm. you know, going back to, to German con- colonists, maybe in the previous, maybe in the 19th century. And um, they don't make a lot of money, but they make enough money. And actually, I met some really interesting. Uh, there was a trio of, of salesmen who came up to me, and I've been ignoring souvenir vendors forever. You know, yeah. <laughs> occasionally I, I buy, but you just get hassled a lot in places by oh, souvenir yeah, of vendors. Course. And I saw people become physically uncomfortable. In fact, there was a story that's like, well, there used to be twelve of us, but then when there's twelve tribesmen running at it, you know, an Italian tourist at a time, they don't, they're not really sure what's <laughs> happening. And and so we ended up we realized that we were scaring people, and so now we go in teams of three and we take turns. It's, it's really, it's really interesting that basically, among the Tamara tribesmen, um, they've agreed that these twelve people are going to work this shipwreck, and that they're going to work in teams of three. Uh, and they were just the coolest people. Actually, I met some in Swakopmund, which is a more it's a tourist town on the the coast up in Namibia. I talked to the souvenir vendors. This is right after Trump too, and we had the the most interesting conversation just about politics and America. That's awesome. Uh, and there were a few there were a few Namibians who were like, "Yeah, Trump's okay," you know. Yeah. Uh, and and of course, Obama's popular, and even in Southern Africa because of his African heritage. But even there, it wasn't. Everybody was, I mean, there were actually some Trump fans among the vendors I talked to, but because they've worked with tourists so much, their English is good. And you just learn these lessons that you wouldn't learn otherwise. Like um, they're sort of wearing sort of jeans and an Argyle sweater type stuff, sneakers. And they're here, oh, when we go back, we wear our cow skins. You know, these are not very comfortable. It's like, what, you, you wear cow skins. You like wear tribal <laughs> cow skins. And they're here, yeah, why would we wear this crap when we're back yeah. home? And so again, you, um, because their English is so good, but yet they're, in their own way, they're traditional tribesmen. You get to talk to them just one to one, you know, and they don't have the middle class uh, prejudices and assumptions of how they're supposed to live. This, this also happened when I was talking to Aboriginal people in Australia, uh, and so it was a fun window into place. I, they they are a part of my first chapter um, where I talk about how um, the market for polished rocks. I bought several. Um, the the market for polished rocks has has bought school books and shoes for their kids for wow, a long time, yeah. you know, that they, they live a pastoral life to make money, but, um, you know, they, they want their kids to go to school and so they they get school books and some of the kids go to Windhoek for, for college. And, um, and it's funny, um, there's an economics to it that, that, you know, purchasing a few pieces of rose quartz on the beach are, is part of this system that eventually might lead to a Tamara kid being in, um, president of Namibia. Who knows, that's you know? Crazy. It's it's And so, again, that's another uh, symptom of slowing down. Like, I've never yeah. slowed down to properly hang out with souvenir vendors. I've been traveling for a long time, but I've never really hung out for half a day with souvenir vendors. And so they're in the book. Yeah, was, that's really funny. I was going to ask you, um, do you mention at all sort of the art and finesse to haggling and finagling in different countries? Not in this book. No. Okay. I, I, um, but I'm sure you've experienced like it, certain countries have a certain flair to it. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And then sometimes speed, like I was just interviewing these guys and they're used to people who are popping out, getting the ship up and going back. I got a great deal on, on the stones, partly because I didn't really want them. And that's happened before in places where I, like once I went to, um, have you been to Myanmar? Have you been to Bagan or Myanmar is like the, the the only place that I haven't been in Southeast Asia, but okay. it, it's coming up this year. Yeah, I, I'm really fond of that place. Um, but I was in the off season. I was like in the rainy season. I was at Bagan, which is this beautiful temple complex. Yeah, yeah. In the Irrawaddy River it's, Valley, it looks beautiful. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing too. It's another one of those. It should be at the top of people's lists. 
And one amazing thing too is that it was rainy season and nobody was there. It was oh. sort of back when the military dictatorship was very unpopular. People were being encouraged not to go. I was actually living on the border of Burma and, and was interacting with a lot of Burmese and, and Karen and other tribal people at the time. Uh, and so it felt natural for me to go. But because it was the off season, um, I really didn't want these souvenirs. I was at the point where I wasn't buying many souvenirs, but no, the people, there were people who, I basically got a great deal. It was good for them and good for me because I, I paid peanuts for these little marionette heads and stuff. And those are hanging in my house now. It's stuff that I was sort of, I couldn't afford not to buy them. They were just so stupidly cheap. Um, and these people needed some off season cash flow. And, and so it's funny. I actually look at those, unlike my masks that are hanging on my wall, um, you know, from, from, uh, you know, these gift shops that those little marionette heads actually literally remind me of the people who sold them to me. Wow. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, a lot of countries in Southeast Asia have their version of the tuk-tuk and that's always a negotiation, almost every ride that you take. And I've been told before, um, I can't, I think it, it must've been Thailand where like, it's actually an emasculating thing for, a foreigner to come in and to not negotiate and just, you know, if you're oversold and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, like, you know, this guy is effeminate or something like that. That's funny. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, it's a weird thing, but there's a, there's constantly a fresh crop of people who will come in and do just that. They'll just like, oh, that's, it's $20 for the taxi. Okay. You know, I've seen that in Egypt, you know, a taxi that should cost a buck 50, you know, people are pulling out the twenties like, oh, this is cheaper than Manhattan. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, And so you, you get salty and I'm probably not the greatest haggler in the world. I guess I am when I have a lot of time and I don't want something. Um, I think it's something, and fixed prices are one, very much a first world thing Mm. and two, very new in the history of the first world. I mean, um, it's probably a late 19th century thing in department stores and, and even in like Sears catalog and stuff would, they would fix prices for mail order. Um, it is, I mean, I, I hear a lot of first time travelers go, well, I didn't want to offend the vendor. And it's like, you are not offending the vendor. Yeah. In fact, they're probably laughing about you right now. It's the same know? thing with tipping too, in a lot of places. Yeah. It's like, what is, what is this? You've given me much more than the bill was. It's yeah. like, oh, that's your tip. Um, uh, what? <laughs> Very American thing. Yeah. Very American thing. And, um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I just got used to not tipping when I was in Asia because it's yeah. just, it just confuses people. It, it, it really does confuse people. Mm. Um, I'll still do it, but sometimes when I'm with my friends that are from that country, they'll, they'll grab it back and give it to me. Like, what are you doing? That's not how much it is. Europe, too. You know, it's sometimes you leave a little extra, but most parts of Europe, tipping is, is just sort of seen as a strange thing. And again, I think it's there's these weird pathologies to America. For whatever reason, we have this service culture and... If you've ever been friends with a waiter or a waitress when you're young or at any age, you realize, well, 20%, you know, that's, I remember my, my friend Diane and my friend Mark, you know, they, they needed that. They, they really needed to sustain themselves. So I'm going to, if the waiter isn't a complete prick, I'm going to tip 20% because I don't know this person, but I knew a version of them a long time ago. Right. Right. Um, well, you know, why don't we just pay servers a, you know, why don't we have a system that rewards servers, you know, make it their metier like they do in France. Um, and so I think one thing about travel is you learn how weird what our normal is just really weird in other parts of the world and fixed prices are a part of that. Um, and there's, yeah. Um, Actually, I had a friend who worked hotel PR in Thailand, and she got so frustrated with the Indian customers because they wanted to haggle over the price of mm-hmm. the room, you know. And and this was like a major chain, and it was just like we don't do that. Uh, and Indians, of course, are great bargainers. It's just like completely instinctive. Yeah. Um, 
The other place I was going to mention, and I'm sorry if you covered this and Marco Polo didn't go there. I'm sorry to say that I didn't read it, but I will. Um, but in one of your lectures, you mentioned and you had a picture of of like a dinghy of a boat that you bought in Laos. Oh, yeah. And then proceeded to go down the Mekong. So I really want to hear about that. Yeah. Actually, that story isn't in Marco Polo didn't go there. There's two really epic stories that I'm really proud of that I just ended up not including. Mm. Um so you can find that at rolfpots.com if you just go down to the Lao okay. section. It's like a it's like a 14,000 word story, a five part series I did for Salon. And I've since hosted it on my, all five parts on my site so you can Okay, great. Great. Save it to pocket or whatever. Anyway, yeah, I was um I was in Lao and it's funny. I've I I'm friends with Joe Cummings who writes the Lonely Planet or did at the time guide to Lao and I think he offhandedly said, well, in one section, you know, it's possible, you know, if you're, if you're interested, buy a, you can buy a fishing boat and see how that works. And so despite the fact that it felt like this unique adventure at the time, there was this auto-suggestion thing from the Lonely Planet guy that I really think that more backpackers had boats on the brain that year, that edition of the Lonely Planet, than they might have had otherwise. But I ran into some Americans, one of whom was... Um, a fisherman uh, in Alaska, and the other guy was sort of an outdoorsman. And long story short, and it is a long story, it's a 14,000 word story. <laughs> we just, we bought a Laotian fishing boat in Luang Prabang. Have you been to Lao? I, I've been to Luang Prabang, yeah. yeah. So it's pretty far north. It's, the, it's this beautiful old royal capital. Um, and we drove that thing to the Cambodian border. We drove it like 800 miles wow. to the Cambodian border. Just dumb chance, because I'm sort of a map nerd, I had bought some topographical maps of Laos in Vientiane when I was there. Maybe because I was, you know, I was a writer and I like to be adventurous and, and I, I can actually read topographical maps. And so I, I knew they'd come in handy for something, but it just so happened that I had these topographical maps that were really helpful for this adventure. I mean, it was, it's sort of harebrained. It's, it, it can be dangerous. It's, it's the 12th yeah. longest river in the world, but it has the second highest volume of water. Wow. Uh, because it drains so many tropical areas. Yeah, yeah. Now, fortunately, my friends had boat experience and could read rivers and knew what the pylons meant. Uh, and I learned that. You know, I, I learned how to drive the boat sort of under their tutelage. I learned how to read the water. And then... It's funny, but I think by the time we got to Takek, which was about halfway, those guys were gone and I had like other travelers were with me and like I was suddenly the expert of this boat that I'd first seen two weeks before. Um, God, you know, if I had had, it was 1999, so I had this throwaway film camera. I thought I was taking a lot of pictures, which uh -huh. in 1999, I like took 25 pictures of this <laughs> three week for journey, you know, just, just the media that I would take of that experience now. I mean, we got, we got um, stopped by, AK-47 toting village militia in one town in Laos and they were drunk and we figured out later that they were actually scared and they, were, they, they didn't want to approach the, they were teenagers basically. Um, but it all worked out. It was a crazy adventure. I could have, I was actually offered a book contract. I wrote it as a five-part series for Salon and somebody offered, Lions Press offered me, asked me if they thought it would be a book and I said, well, sure, but I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm six months into this amazing trip and I don't have time to yeah. write that. Wow. Um, and it was a good choice because Salon had a lot of travel content at the time. It has none now. Um, and yeah, uh, I would have had that book but not vagabonding probably. Okay. Uh, so yeah, just it was just... It was like vagabonding times 10 because we were driving a freaking boat down the river. Hell yeah. And, uh, and so every day was just 
problem solving all day long. And then it's like, okay, it's, it's four or five in the afternoon. Let's find a village or let's find a beach and camp. We would, we would have to stock up. It was like an expedition. It was like being in the 19th century and you'd have to go to a village, buy enough fuel and, um, provisions to make sure so cool. that you could make it to the next village, you know. And there used to be before drunk tourists started drowning, like there used to be a bunch of bars along the river at certain parts of La. That is um, at Vang Vieng, which is, diff- is a different river. It's not the Mekong. Oh, okay, okay. So that's if you if you're going to Luang Prabang by bus, which I've never done because of this boat experience. <laughs> if you're going from Vientiane to um, Luang Prabang, Vang Vieng, which is was just starting out when I was there in 99. It's just this pretty place along the river. It's a nice stopover. Uh, some Lao people decided to, to, to set up some guest houses and they bought some inner tubes and it turned into like douchebag central, yeah. you know, like by, yeah. the, by, I don't know when, but it was like just dumbass party people. And I have nothing against partying overseas, but just people who weren't putting a lot of thought into how they were partying. And we're using too, drinking too much, using too many drugs, and killing themselves. Yeah, like people are drowning, jumping off of things, and <laughs> or drowning in the river. And it's just like life is long, man. Um, there are better things to do than to than than to have your your trippy um, gap year experience in Vong Vang. What a what a weird place to die. Um, and I'm sure there's people having perfectly fine experiences and fun experiences in Vong Vang, not killing themselves, not being douchey, but. It's, it just seems like a waste of going to that part of the world, you know? That there's- yeah. It's funny. It, it almost, I got the feel at times that uh, for young college-aged people on holiday in Australia, the proximity is kind of like folks here in America going to Cancun and having a wild drunken time in like a hot place with a beach. Uh, and so you do get a lot of that in places in Southeast Asia and with that comes being young and stupid and experimenting and sometimes failing at that experiment. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to pick on young people too much, uh, but it really is. It's mostly young people doing it. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't want to be the, the older traveler wag, wagging his finger at young yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> just don't be a dumbass, guys. I mean, have fun. But um, but yeah, I mean, Kuta Beach in Bali has gotten a bad reputation. Um, oh, yeah. Kopanyan in uh, in Thailand, like the, the full moon parties. In fact, literally the, the next people I'm meeting in New York uh, this evening are, is Peggy Vale and Mel- Melvin Estrella, who made a documentary called Gringo Trails, which is worth tracking down. I'm not sure if it's on Hulu or Amazon or what. I'm in it. I'm a talking head in it. But it it, it documents, it talks to a guy who went to Copanyan in like 81. Wow. And it document it films a full moon party in the day after. And it's just heartbreaking, you know, because... It, it sort of looks fun at night when people are waving their phosphorescent wands around and dancing. And the next morning, it's just a beach covered in garbage with passed out people and just litter everywhere. And uh, again, it, it, I like the idea of partying someplace, but to the young travelers out there, you can have a blast anywhere. You don't have to go where everybody else goes. You don't have to go to the to the fantastic, you know, burning man in the jungle that's happening. You know, you don't have to be a joiner. You can find six awesome people and go have your drug or liquor experience in a place that's awesome and is not completely obnoxious and is not going to kill you. Right. Uh, and so it, didn't, wasn't there a thing in the, within the last year there, somebody 
was going to throw some sort of big influencer party on an island in the Caribbean. Do you remember this? Oh, my God, yeah. Somehow, like, Ja Rule was involved. Yes. Yeah, and, and all these artists. The yeah, organizers were just so yeah. incompetent that they spent all their money, and, and people showed up, and nothing was built. He was no sentenced this week. Oh, was he for, sentenced For this some week? type of a fraud, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's going away. And, and to those of you who showed up in wherever <laughs> the hell that was, and there was no place to stay and nothing to eat, it's sort of your fault for being a joiner. Again, just because there's a full moon party on Copanyan, because there's they have techno tubing parties down the river in Vong Vieng, and I'm sorry if I'm going on a ta- tangent, you don't have to go. It's actually not cool to be number the eleven thousandth person to show up to the party. It, there's actually it's more rewarding. I mean, and, and and just as fun, if not more, to find a more intimate group of people that you know and and make your own fun, you know? Yeah, you've written about this extensively, but that's sort of like, it's like the Khao San Road thing for me, where it's just like, oh, no, like this, this is not quite what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, it's great if you're looking for a cheap place to stay, but if, I mean, if you're there fist pumping every night through the night, it's like, all right, well, <laughs> you didn't really do Thailand. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. And, and fortunately, young people have the rest of their lives to travel in a more meaningful way. And in my first vagabond trip, I actually spent a month in Florida because it was like I did four c- consecutive spring breaks. I mean, not that I was fist pumping every uh-huh. day, but I had some fun and sort of I was almost. Yeah, I sound like a curmudgeon, age. don't I? I'm thinking. Well, I mean, <laughs> well you've, you've earned it, right? Um, but yeah, you, you sound like a curmudgeon because that's no longer a value to you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you know how in retrospect it was sort of dumb. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even now, like, you know, you go to a, a beach party and meet a cute girl. Well, you can match on Bumble in Thailand. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's just, it's just so much easier. Tinder's huge over there. The, the, the old, the old pretexts. Again, I'm not, I, I've never been a guy who, who, you know, dancing on the beach. That was my, in, at three in the morning, that was my thing. So maybe I'm not the expert. Maybe we, maybe we should, maybe you should find someone who is the beach party, full moon party expert who can make a case for it. Cause maybe there is, but again, yeah, if, if you're out there, email me <laughs> just because it's the thing you've read about doesn't mean that you have to go there. Right. You know? uh, because the, there's other, there's a bunch of other people from England and Australia and Connecticut and other places who are going to go there too who are going to be constantly looking over their shoulder for, you know, where's the cool thing happening. So anyway, I don't want to go on a tirade against these sorts of parties, but as in Vang Vang, the safety factor is really not there. There's no class action lawsuits in Laos to, yeah. to protect, to have them build safe facilities. And two, it's just so much better. There's so many superior experiences that you haven't heard about, but you can create. You can get on the bus to some town you've never heard of before with some friends and just create your, your own adventure there and not have to elbow your way through a crowd of, of, of drugged up Danes and, and um, Israelis and Canadians at some party that is not as fun as, as it might have been in your mind. Um, there's something I've wanted to talk about for a while and I think maybe you'd be, you'd have the, because of all of your travels, maybe you'd have the best resume to be able to speak about this. But when you were on, so you mentioned Ari Shafir. Uh, it was either when he was on yours or when you were on his, obviously. Uh, first of all, he's, he's a slippery one. I've been trying to, I've been trying to get him for a while. Um, just because he, he, you know, for people that don't know, comedian who had a successful show on Comedy Central and decided to, you know what, I'm going to take four months out of life and go travel, which is really cool. Uh, but he, he asked you about like travel romances and you've also written about this. 
And so I want to take, to, to use this to parlay into a different question, but um, you've talked about the difficult, first of all, the, the honeymoon period of being in an exotic romantic place and how that can fade. And also the, the leaving of someone, like you're going to be moving on to someplace new. Um, so I've been, again, looking at this a lot through the lens of Southeast Asia, but one thing that, that feels weird to me, and, and this is really multifaceted, there's a lot of places to go, but the the prevalence of quite older men and their young Asian Local girlfriends. Girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. And and this this takes many forms, and this could be a three-hour podcast on its own, but I think one of the reasons I bring it up is I have I have friends in, in Southeast Asia. Um, I've had people who've been romantic interests. And I have a friend who lives in more conservative Vietnam who worked in a bar. And there's an expectation in a place like Thailand that the person working in the bar is also a sex worker. Hmm. Where in Vietnam, which is much more conservative, it's not the case. And there are people that work in the bars that will come sit with you. And the, the whole idea is to get you to buy more drinks and to buy them a drink which they often just fill up with juice or soda, she told me, because they don't actually want to drink, but they'll charge you the liquor price. Um, and I don't know if I'm wrong to feel kind of icky about seeing that. There's people that make the argument, this is part of the culture, which I think is kind of bullshit. But there's also the people that make the, the argument, well, this is putting money in people's pockets. Um, do you feel any certain way about that sort of an arrangement? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it... It spans many countries, and sometimes it is culturally specific. Korea has Delanju Joms. I lived in Korea for two years, which is a hostess bar. You know, we're basically you're doing business deals while being waited upon by a 17 year old girl who's feeding you pineapple and giving you cocktails and wow. expecting cocktails to be purchased for her. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of business culture, and it's just insanely patriarchal, you know. Um, but it's a thing. You know, it's 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 culturally specific to Korea. There's an equivalent in, in Japan. I know Korea, that, that world the best because I lived there for a while. Um, and then there, there is straight up, in a place like Thailand, which is another place I know well, um, Vietnam I, I know less well, uh, there's straight up prostitution yeah. and there's different degrees of it. Right. And then there's a lot of, and actually this happens for both genders. There's sort of a vacation hustle where basically you, Travelers will get a local girlfriend for a couple months. Yes. And she might have, and then they're mailing her family money from Denmark or wherever. I've seen the reverse happen in the Dominican Republic and parts of Africa where uh, women will come and, and have a young, handsome, uh, studly boyfriend. I saw that in Kenya, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, in the Dominican Republic, there's a lot of Canadian women, but I know a lot of Scandinavian women's go to, women's, women go to West Africa. And it's a thing. It, it's, sex, it's been written about. And it's literally sex tour, tourism. But, of course, men do it more. Right. Um, and women, women don't do a straight-up prostitutional exchange with men because they don't have to. Um, men oftentimes do. Uh, so there's that... There's, there's that I think that the straight up prostitutional thing, yes, it's cultural. I mean, there's a lot of prostitution would exist without tourists in all those parts of Asia. You know, you 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 see those neighborhoods if you travel long enough, where local men um, are frequenting prostitutes. I just want to throw a caveat in there too. I'm not. What I'm not saying is like I'm not demonizing sex work. I even think there's a, a quite rational argument for legalizing it in certain places. Um, but the it's almost like the, I'll say this, um, 
my, my friends who have, have told me about stuff like this is it's like you as a, as a Western male, you represent, um, you represent money, you represent moving up in life, and you can really screw up somebody's life who then tries to make a commitment to you in one of these like four month girlfriend situations or with sex comes procreation and often, not maybe not often, but it happens that a woman in Southeast Asia is left with a baby and the man leaves and there's no legal recourse because the man lives in another country. And sometimes that baby then is looked at differently because they are fair-skinned or blue-eyed or they look like they should know English and they don't know English. So there's just like, it kind of spider webs out from people who think they're just going and enjoying something for themselves and not understanding the impact on the, com- the local communities. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's its own podcast, you know, as far as yeah, the, yeah. The, the wrinkles and covers you can do. Basically, a general thing is just don't be a sex tourist. You yeah. Know? Uh, don't be life, grimy. Life is long and good. I mean, it, and, and it is creepy to be a sex tourist. And I think even sometimes, yeah, uh, that dating can be awkward in countries where the, where the, um, Financial stakes are so much different, yeah. you know. Um, but again, that happens. You know, I've I've had I've I've had um, American female friends who've fallen in love and married guys from yeah. from Cuba or, or parts of Africa or, or um, parts of uh, South Asia um, where there is an economic imbalance, um, and, and men too, you know. So I, I think that's so broad. Is that the easy answer is just like don't do this, and I, I think that's good advice. But then there's also romances that are more ambiguous than two middle class white people in America dating, right? And, and then and there's there's all these gendered issues, you know, because it's um, uh, women's sex tourism is 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 much simpler than men's sex tourism, I think. Because there's there's different there's more iterations for men, you know, from straight out transactional sex, right, um, all the way up to to um, maybe uh, a very transactional relationship that ends in a marriage that might last a lifetime, you know. Yeah, that's true. Um, so anyway, th- those are the sort of nuances we don't have time to talk about. Right. But but the short answer is, you know, don't be creepy. I mean, a- again, there's there's um, life is long and there's a lot of dating options and and sort of. <sighs> Paying for sex is is a dumb travel activity, it would seem. Again, find me a guest who can give me the counter argument. Right. And again, sex work um, is a thing that's going to happen anyway, you know. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe, like, I, I, I know people who have given arguments, again, for organizing sex workers. Uh, so... I'm being very mushy here. No, I no, I think you're, there's so many. There's so many. I think you're being fair because again, yeah, like we could go for three hours. Uh, I mean, I think eventually, it, the next time I'm in Southeast Asia, I'd, I'd love to interview somebody who's involved in sex work because I think it is really nuanced. And I, I don't bring it up to be creepy. I bring it up to say like it is very in your face in some countries. Like it is very obvious and there and like part of what you're seeing often, especially if you're out at night. And somewhere there's a hundred expats in Cambodia rolling their eyes <laughs> yeah. and, and writing, I just, writing angry just letters. Just put a hit out on me. Um, uh, because yeah, and you know, um, yeah, there's a counter argument. I'm not going to make it for the yeah. most part. I've I understand I, where I've you're really going. I've avoided that. Like I've successfully avoided that most of my travel career. I've been to the Pat Pong shows in Bangkok uh, out of curiosity. I, Same. I've been yeah. to Delonge Joms and stuff. In fact, I wrote a story about it uh, in Cambodia once that a guy who had been appeared in a book that called Off the Rails in Phnom Penh, he, he appeared, he's a German guy, he took me to some sort of, you know, massage place, um, 
sketchy massage place. But then my curiosities were sort of sated and it just, the world stopped, in, stopped interesting me. So it's been years since I've even thought about that stuff, yeah. but it continues to exist and it's, and it's its own world. But as a traveler, there's so many better things to do. You know, yeah. there's so many, there's so many more amazing ways to spend your time when you're overseas. I could talk to you forever. I'll wrap up with uh, quite an easy one. What's left? Like, where have you not been that you're itching to get to? Oh, well, that's such a tricky question because even in places you've been, there's places you haven't been. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> I think this will be my 14th year of spending a month in, in Paris. And one thing I did for the souvenir book is that I walked down every street in the fifth arrondissement. It took me 10 hours. Oh. Um, and I think there's 20 arrondissements in Paris. So it's just one little section of the city, which is, is where I've lived every summer since 2005. It's where my school is. I, I, because, and I had a map of the fifth. I walked down every street and penciled it out. I found, I found miles of streets I'd never been on before. In, 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 a, in a one square mile of Paris. I, I have little alleyways, little corners of the fifth. Even in, a, even in a city where I teach my students to be flaneurs, to, to wander, to not travel the same place twice. Even under that umbrella, I had missed streets in my own neighborhood in Paris. So that's the, that's the caveat answer to the question. Um, Africa fascinates me. There's a lot of places I haven't been to in Africa. Central Asia is a big blank spot uh, on my... The stands? The stands, for yeah. sure. And even a ton of Russia. Eastern Europe, too. I'm, I'm really under-traveled in Eastern Europe. Never been to Alaska, having been to Hawaii this summer, and having loved Hawaii. Similar thing with Paris. I'd lived in Asia for years, thought, well, Paris is full of, you know, American middle-class people. Paris blew me away. I've been going there for years and years now. Uh, and so uh, Hawaii was another place that really exceeded my expectations, and I can see myself going back to. Um, and this is the thing, is that there is no done, you know, there's no complete, um, because just the world is too big and, and it keeps changing. And again, you live in a city, I think by that time, I, it was my 12th summer in a row. And suddenly you are 600 meters as the crow flies from an apartment you've been in forever and you're on a completely new street looking at jazz clubs and boulangeries and stuff. Uh, and so this is good news, everyone. This is good news that you, there is no completeness to the bucket list. There's another term that has come into parlance since I wrote Vagabonding. Mm. Uh, and if that encourages people to travel, go for it. But just remember that the best things are not even on your bucket list because you don't know about them yet, right? So Awesome. So I'm going to... Uh, by this point, people, you'll know from the intro that there's a, a book giveaway on social media. I will list as much of your contacts and websites and things like that in the show notes, but there, is there anything specifically that you want to plug or any, anything people should check out? When is it going to run? I Hopefully, what, what is today? Today is the 14th. Hopefully, this will be out the 16th, oh. so Friday. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about Souvenir because cool. we're still in the thick of it. Souvenir is my new book, and I'm, I'm happy about that, and I encourage people to get it. Uh, but really, it sort of falls into place. It, it, it all comes back to vagabonding. When I was talking to Pauline Fromer today, you know, she, that's sort of how she contextualized me. Um, I'm the vagabond. I will always be the vagabonding guy, probably. Um, so, and, I'm, and I love when people get that book. You know, that's a special book for me, as, as well as uh, a lot of people who read it. So... Yeah, send them to my website, my social media. I don't think there's, there's anything extraordinary except for the, the new book, um, which we've talked about in the interview itself. So Cool. Um, well, I do want to have on here, thank you. I am constantly humbled when I meet people that I've looked up to so much, and they're so genuine and cool and just seem like 
people to me. So uh, you're one of those, and you've had a huge influence on me and people I know, and obviously with one million sold, a million people. So uh, thank you. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This has been fun. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. As always, take care of each other. Bye-bye.